Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone knows that a food system which harms water, soil, and life is recklessly foolish. What is also mind-numbingly reckless is the all-too-common landscape practices in the Twin Cities. And that's our topic for today. And we're very pleased to have in studio with us Russ Henry and Chelsea Enquist, who together own and operate Minnehaha Falls Landscaping, an all-organic landscaping company. Together, they also founded Be Safe Minneapolis, an organization dedicated to transitioning the entire city of Minneapolis to pesticide-free management. Hi. Hey, Laura. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for also co-producing this show. I really appreciate this. Now, an entire city pesticide-free management. Sounds nice, doesn't it? It does. I think it's possible. And I think, in fact, it's inevitable. We have to head in this direction. And the sooner we do it, the better for all of us. Okay, why? Well, pesticides represent huge risks. Um, I, uh, I'm of the belief that we are no longer protected by regulatory agencies. Oh, really? Where would you get that idea from? Well, it was about the time that <laughs> uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, George Bush Sr. and Jr. and, um, and uh, the current resident uh, in, in chief all appointed Monsanto executives to be in their, uh, in their, chief, in their top executive um, uh, so in their top, top executives. So um, it, it's just quite apparent uh, to everybody who's paying attention that agribusiness has run of the day when it comes to regulation. And because of that, these chemicals like Roundup that are out there right now, my gosh, we just have really no basic protections from them. In fact, the state of Minnesota has a preemption out there so that no city like Minneapolis or St. Paul, could go in and make any rules at all regarding pesticides. We can't ban, for instance, the cosmetic use of pesticides that we know are dangerous, like Roundup or 2,4-D, on places that they're only used for aesthetic purposes, such as lawns. So we're not allowed to have democratic control if, it, if it's going to interfere with the pesticide company's profits. Exactly. We are preempted from having any local democratic control. It's enough to make a person mad. <laughs> it makes me mad every time I think about it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Chelsea, you want to pop in here? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the other aspect of health, public health and social justice that we don't always talk about when we're talking about the introduction of toxins into the environment um, inherent in low income, uh, you know, areas, underserved folks, is the fact that these management practices really are in place in order to maintain um, the landscapes that represent colonialism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so when we're talking about lawns and maintaining a certain aesthetic, we are certainly talking about um, the devastation and the manifestation of colonial practices and European settlement. That's such a good point. It is. It is. I have a, a friend who's got his Ph.D. in geography, and he, he did a paper on the history of the lawn. And it and it's all about trying to be better than each other. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm the person of the manor. Look at mm-hmm. my lawn. Mm-hmm. And earlier I was kind of joking about this. But, you know, instead of being better than or worse than each other, let's just be with each other. Let's be with each other. Yeah. That's such a great idea. Isn't that? Yeah. And, that is so and with life, like mm-hmm. the bees and the pollinators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to have healthy outdoor spaces where we can gather in community and not just human community, but mm-hmm. also the environment. Awesome. And joining us now by phone is uh, Wilda Childress uh, from the Pesticide Action Network. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Radio. Thanks, Laura. It's good to be here. Hey, Willa, it's so great to be on the radio with you again. Um, you you spend a lot of time working on the issues related to pesticides. And, and I just wonder, um, what do you think? Is this a big problem? Uh, is the scope of pesticide use locally something to be concerned about? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I don't think you would have invited me to be part of this conversation if I thought that it wasn't a problem. Yeah. Um, but when really when we talk about scope, we're talking about a market that's basically expanding in all directions um, and has been for quite some time. And right now in the U.S., you know, agriculture continues to use more and more pesticides each year. And that's happening even as the number of farmers who are on the land and farm incomes are steadily decreasing. So you see farmers spending higher percentages of their total farm expenditures on pesticides than they ever have before. 
And then off farms for cosmetic pesticides, which you've already mentioned, we see this other alarming trend. Um, and, you know, those pesticides don't make up pound per pound as much as as much of the market as agricultural pesticides, but they're often used at concentrations that are much, much higher. And so you see uh, pesticides that people can buy at Ace Hardware for their lawns, for home gardens, for the flowers that they've planted in their flower beds that are approved for use up to 120 times higher than the uses approved on farm fields. And people don't Mm. have the expertise needed to apply them. So what are the problems with pesticides? A whole range of problems. Um, I, I mean, as Russ has mentioned, we, we're, we're looking at a system that is not only bad for the environment, that is not only products that are not only harming soil health and the health of pollinators and other insects, um, but also uh, a number of chemistries that are really bad for human health. Mm. And... The science on this is not just, it's not just a question. And even if it was, I think that we'd, we'd have serious reason to take a lot of these things off the market, even if there was just a, a question about whether these things caused serious brain damage or, or long-standing uh, impacts for children, for example. But we actually have really sound science for a number of these products that shows that pesticides are, they, they do what they're intended to do, which is kill a number of um, species, uh, you know, damage, cause damage to cells. And we're seeing that in human bodies as well as in the ecosystem. So, you know, I touched on the regulatory framework earlier. We've got all of these regulatory agencies. These pesticides, you know, we know them to be very dangerous. Why are, you know, what can we do? Are we being protected or what can we do, do you think, to, to have more protections as consumers yeah. and people? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I think it's really complicated. I mean, if we look at the state, and we kind of zoom zoom in from the federal level because that's even more complicated. Even on the state level, the here in Minnesota, the agency that's responsible for regulator, regulating pesticides is the Department of Agriculture. Mm-hmm. It's not the Department of Health. It's not the Department of Natural Resources or Pollution Control, but it's the department that's currently dealing with all a number of issues related to the farm crisis. And so they're really swamped with other issues. Their priority is helping farmers stay afloat and increasing on-farm income. And in, in that sense, passing new preventative pesticide laws is way on the back burner. <laughs> and then there's overall lack of funding for enforcing the number of actually good laws that have already been passed that, that um, exist in the books. Um, hmm, like what? And an example of that, I can give an example, um, pesticide drift hmm. is one of the issues that I work with people around, um, and it, it's, it's illegal. Pesticide drift is, there are, there are laws that say that drift off target onto someone else's property is not allowed. Hmm. If you're applying pesticides, they need to stay on, on your own crops and in, on your own land, and yet people violate this day after day mm-hmm. and I get calls from people who have had their crops destroyed by their neighbor's pesticide applicator who are having severe health problems and it's really really difficult to prove that these things happen and to have the proper um, response from any regulatory agency when when something like this occurs. So does it kind of feel like the, the victims of these um, these drifting pesticides are, do they, do they end up feeling like they just don't have anywhere to turn when the regulatory agencies won't give them a hand? Or is there, is there any, are there any places for folks to turn when this, when this happens? Well, often people turn to organizations like us yeah. um, or they turn to neighbors who are experiencing the same problems. And unfortunately, you know, right now, because we don't have a good system that's in place, sometimes all people can do is try and appeal to the neighbor that has caused them harm mm-hmm. and and ask them to repay any damages or pay their medical bills. And that that's just absolutely not a good system when you're relying on someone who you're in conflict with to, to give you any support at all. Mm. 
speaking of systems, um, when we kind of take a, a step back and we look at the overall very relaxed regulatory framework around pesticide use in the United States, um, and we compare that to, say, the precautionary principle, um, what do you think about the precautionary principle? Is that something that could be used as a framework for creating policy? Yeah, absolutely. And other countries do a lot better better of a job um, using the precautionary principle. Um, yeah, I, I mean, for people who don't really understand what, what that term entails, it's basically this idea that a chemistry or product shouldn't be approved for the market until it is proved to be safe. And that, that sounds, at its core, that sounds pretty, like, a, that sounds like a no-brainer. And yet what we have in the United States is a system where something generally is approved, um, even if there are questions about its safety, questions about the impacts that it might have, both acute and chronic, on ecosystem and human health. And then it's up to consumers, it's up to scientists to prove without a doubt that it causes problems before it can be taken off the market. <laughs> and even yes. then, when we have mounds of science, sometimes that isn't enough because these products are backed by corporations with a number of lobbyists and um, other groups other that can so, can do science to prove that you know to see that they are they are yeah so wilda is with the uh, pesticide action network and how can people get in contact with you if they want to well, contact you can, you can go to our website you can sign up for our monthly newsletter and you can also just call me um <laughs> If people want to, if people want to get in contact, they can they can send me an email. Um, I'm yeah. always happy to talk through problems. Awesome! And you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. That's all Eat fresh and support local farmers by shopping at the Minneapolis Farmer's Market. It's peak time at the Farmer's Market. Lots of sweet corn, eggplants, fresh and local fruits and vegetables, meat and farmstead goods. Keep the summer bounty all year long because it's a great time to pickle and can. Look for the cucumbers, incredible deal, canning tomatoes. The Minneapolis Farmer's Market is open every day, 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. Plus, there's additional locations Tuesdays at the Hennepin County Government Center and Thursdays at Nicollet Mall. More details at mplsfarmersmarket.com. Most of us try to be careful about how we eat and the safety of our food. At Total Dog Company, we believe in giving our dogs nutritious, safe food, too. We offer a variety of kibble, canned and frozen and dehydrated raw foods. We study ingredient lists of every food we sell. We don't sell products that are primarily vegetable protein or that contain generic proteins, byproducts, fillers, or artificial preservatives. Find us in New Hope off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North and at TotalDogCompany.com. Legal issues, never fun, and they're certainly stressful. While it's tempting just to Google your legal situation, there is a better way. The Hennepin County Bar Association. Their referral counselors can answer many of your questions, like do you even need an attorney? And if you do, what type? They can connect you to a network of over 200 thoroughly vetted, qualified attorneys practicing in over 50 areas of law. Call 612-752-6666 or search for Hennepin County Bar Association. The right call for the right lawyer. Hi, this is Ken Hagland, host of Living Healthy and Aging Well, inviting you to listen to our new show airing on Saturdays from noon to one, where we talk about your health and your life and provide insights to living and aging well. Each week, we provide answers to important questions regarding health care, elder care, end-of-life care, and caregiver support to help you and your loved ones plan for the future and enjoy your highest quality of life today. Please join us every Saturday from noon to one for Living Healthy and Aging Well. Hi, this is Chad from AM950. Snap Construction is arguably the most well-reviewed roofing, siding, window, and insulation contractor in the metro. Ryan is so excited about working with AM950 and our listeners that he wants to help us grow. This is Ryan, owner of Snap Construction. I was friends with Chad long before I started marketing with him. I was a bit skeptical of radio advertising before Chad convinced us to run ads. The advertising's been so successful, we want to help the station grow. We've absolutely loved working with the listeners of AM950, and we all know how extreme 
extremely important this radio station is to the community. To help AM 950 grow this summer, Snap Construction will be putting up proceeds to assist the station in marketing on social media. Snap Construction encourages you to follow, engage, share, and interact on the AM 950 social media platforms. Together, we can all work to ensure AM 950 continues to thrive and grow in our communities. We stand by our work with a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee. For a free estimate or more information on our financing, call 612-333-SNAP or check us out online. So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we want a brand new day, where everyone's prudent. <laughs> so, um, and uh, so last segment, we were talking about the Pesticide Action Network. And of course, this year, last year, um, a big uh, jury verdict against mm. Monsanto Roundup. Huge. A huge $2 billion verdict. And so the lawyers, the best lawyers, looked at all the evidence. They put out all the evidence, and the jury looked and said, yes, people are dying of cancer because of these products. Three juries now. Three juries. Three different trials. And now, and they've all won. Um, one of them, like you said, was $2 billion. Uh, each of the others were over $50 million apiece and in the, in the um, jury awards. Because all of these juries are looking at the evidence and seeing that Monsanto has been making fake science. They've been going into universities, paying university uh, researchers to produce fake science. And then these researchers get so enamored of the money loop that they're that they're uh, hooked into with Monsanto that what they end up doing is becoming advocates for Monsanto's products so some of the emails rela- released at trial show these university researchers supposedly independent saying some very horrible things about what Monsanto should do to quote the moms who are opposed to them yeah. and who are opposed to Roundup. So it's just what you can see what's coming out is, and what the juries are seeing and responding to is how absolutely egregious and, and over-the-top And yet Monsanto's this stuff been. is commonly, it's in all of our aisles, it looks safe, people buy these chemicals for their particular lawns, and everything looks like, well, this should be okay. Yeah. But the evidence for cancer, and, and let's also connect this with our pets. Yeah. Uh, people would be spraying their yards with stuff, and the dogs roll around, and the dogs bring this stuff in the house. It doesn't go away. Um, and it's almost like we're on a, an illusionary treadmill that we're just not able to wake up to the consequences. It's completely nuts. I, As a landscaper, I can tell you that I am frightened to be exposed to so many different pesticides just driving around. In our own company, we don't use any pesticides. But, of course, there's neighboring properties. And so our crews will be out and, you know, somebody will come along with the big spray tank and they might have a respirator on and a, and a, and a suit and a hazmat suit. But my crew doesn't. The kids next door don't. The dog walking through the lawn doesn't. You know, the rabbits and the birds don't have have a respirator or a suit. So it's just completely outrageous that a company could go along, could go around and and you know essentially be poisoning our neighborhoods for money. And and, and it it gets us all mad and frazzled too because this is common. Mm -hmm. It's all so common and it's so consequential. So okay, now let's get to some nuts and bolts. How do you keep weeds down without using them? Don't we need all these chemicals? Care can you? Yeah, you bet. Well, the other thing I wanted to mention about, you know, as we're talking about the devastations of these project uh, products is the reality of the kill cause method. So your question segues perfectly, you know, what's happening when we use these chemicals is we're degrading the health of the soil, we're killing the soil microbiology that's beneficial and necessary for the plants to thrive, um, and creating conditions for more weeds. So not only are these, uh, you know, toxins harmful to human health and the environmental health, but it's also a totally ineffective method of weed control of weed control exactly exactly so um when i'm in the gardens what i'm really understanding is that weeds are indicators that what weeds are is a manifestation of the soil health and other environmental factors so when i'm focusing on how to suppress weeds or prevent weeds what i'm actually focusing on is creating the conditions for some other type of plant growth growing healthy soil and growing healthy soil exactly so you know getting down to the practicality of it what does that look like it looks like covering the soil in order to prevent compaction and uh, using something like wood chips, which will also contribute fungal components to the soil, which we're, you know, definitely wanting for. Um, understanding that weeds are growing in soils that are disturbed, which, again, is all of our soils, mm-hmm. right, on the planet at this point. And so... Um, 
covering those soils to prevent compaction, prevent weed growth. Uh, wood mulch is a great option. Living mulch is what What's I that? find to be an even better option, which, uh, you know, is actually ground covers. So green, growing, what can I grow here that's going to cover the soil and um, out-compete the other plants? What are some of the ground covers you like to use in the garden? Well, some of my favorites, uh, you know, in the sun, what I would love to see is a native prairie pussy toes. <laughs> oh, I like They're the so name. They're so cute. They're so Na- sweet. Say this again, native prairie pussy toes. Prairie pussy toes, exactly. And then in the shade, so if you have more of a woodland type garden, what I love to see is the wild ginger. Oh, wild uh-huh. ginger. That's really fun. And you have a fun uh, bumblebee bonanza buffet, parlor and nectar forage, a little brochure. Um, uh, so tell us about this type of approach. Oh, yeah. I love this. So this is inviting the bees over for lunch or brunch or what, nice. whatever time of day it is for the bees to have a nice meal. Uh, these plants all, you know, in what we have in the menu shows uh, plants that are going to grow in the sun or the shade at different heights. So if you need something a little bit more walkable, that's where you can sprinkle out some white clover, you know, have something soft, easy to maintain, um, and then um, adding grasses like blue stem, you know. So depending on the environment that you're trying to cultivate, that, you know, this is a great option for for bee forage. And that's one thing I, I, when you say depending on the environment, everything is place-based and individualized. Yes. And so one of the problems with the chemical approach is it sort of t- it, uh, it treats everything as one thing. Like mm-hmm. all the plants need is this one nutrient and then you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. It's it the monoculture approach. It's a monoculture approach, yeah. And the bees can't find life in that monoculture. We, we really are in a huge decline of bees. Native bees, honeybees are all in serious trouble. Uh, monarch butterflies, 90% decline over the last 10 years. Absolutely huge, staggering problems going on out there and what we you know the answer is in the weeds i was going to ask you chesney do you pull every weed that you come across <laughs> well that's a great question also what's a weed so if we can back up a little bit and start to understand that you know as i work i practice low impact gardening so what that looks like to me is entering a landscape and understanding that everything i do in this landscape every footfall every intervention has a huge impact on what is actually the environment or an ecosystem so when i enter a space and i see what might some might judge as a weed maybe a dandelion i'm recognizing that the that's early season forage for bees Mm -hmm. and that it might be beneficial and that the whole plant is edible and medicinal. So I'm really looking at planting for abundance um, and planting, you know, uh, stuff that the the bees are going to love. That is awesome. I got to say, as somebody um, myself, uh, you know, Chesney runs the garden end of the business and I run the lawn end of the business. And um, as a lawn guy, I can say that there's one plant out there that people love to hate that I just really wish we could turn folks' minds around on. And so dear old Charlie growing along on the ground, a.k.a. ground ivy out there. And uh, folks just hate Charlie. But if you think about Charlie, creeping Charlie is mowable, walkable drought resistant stays green when the rest of the grass is trying to turn brown and the biggest most important thing is it blooms and the bees love it right it's purple it's beautiful and i and i tell you what nobody likes a creep but everybody should like charlie so <laughs> so we gave charlie a new name uh-huh. And he's Good Time Charlie from here on in. And good time everybody Charlie. should invite Good Time Charlie into their lawn. You know, and that has actually changed my yard. I mean, changed my mind because I had I was kind of getting tired of Good Time Charlie too because <laughs> he was threatening some of my moss and I love uh, my moss. Yes, I have this yeah. beautiful area of moss uh, and so Good Time Charlie was out creeping him. But now that I've kind of rebranded him Good Time Charlie, I see he's coexisting with my moss that's just fine. That's so great. I know, I'm very I happy it. with that's that. Wonderful. And like I don't I don't I do very little weeding. I mean, maybe in the box garden into for the tomatoes to make sure they have enough space but but it is it is about how uh, how to redefine things and when you're saying monoculture doesn't work for the bees i also think monoculture doesn't work very well for us that's right it sure doesn't it's kind of ugly isn't yeah, it? it's kind of well, ugly but it also requires a, a much larger amount of inputs you know we we know we're avoiding the chemicals but the time the budget for time and money all of that so um, Diversity works in diversity people works. And, and in landscapes. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and uh, we'll be back right after the break. The Audubon Center of the Northwoods on Grindstone Lake, west of Sandstone, offers a great variety of environmental learning experiences for people of all ages running year-round. But did you know you can book your own event here at the center? Check out our lakeside dining hall and the variety of lodging and meeting accommodations available. 
Visit us on the web at audubon-centre.org or call 320-245-ACNW. The Audubon Centre of the North Woods. This is Chad, owner of AM950. Our station has worked with Barbara from WYSIWYG Web Design for years on everything from logo to print design and especially for developing our website. She does great work and is great to work with, listening to what our goals and design ideas were while offering new, innovative ideas to create the website we are proud of today. Barbara made sure she understood our station, our goals, and our mission before she started working on our site and made suggestions to help control the cost. Plus, she's friendly, which set us at ease. I recommend Barbara at WYSIWYG Web Design because I know she will deliver an attractive, professional website within the budget you have. She is a local independent business that specializes in helping other local businesses achieve their website and design goals. She can work with nearly any budget and create anything from simple sites to robust custom functionality. To find out more about the company AM950 Trust, go to WYSIWYGWebDesign.com. Spelled out just like it sounds, WYSIWYGWebDesign.com. Crooner's Lounge and Supper Club is delighted to offer its spacious facilities for your private function. From weddings, retirement parties, business dinners, or any special occasion, Crooner's combines a dedicated, full-service special events team, an award-winning chef, and a beautiful lakeside ambiance to make your event a resounding success. Visit croonersloungemn.com to learn more about their private dining options, or call 763-571-9020 to get a quote for your next event today. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Join us for New Beginnings, Saturday mornings at 11, brought to you in part by Vision Loss Resources. With your AM 950 weather, this is Eric Nelson. Saturday, showers and thunderstorms are likely, with up to half of an inch possible. Highs of 78 and a low around 57. Sunday will be sunny, with a high of 68 and a low around 53. At the Minneapolis Farmer's Market, everything is available and in season. Also, with fall around the corner and winter on its way, don't forget the market goes all the way through October. And if the temperature holds, Farmer's Market will continue as long as possible. Then the winter market starts up, featuring cheese, meat, and Christmas tree vendors. student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who knows that a food system which harms water, soil, and life is recklessly foolish, as is mind-numbingly reckless, are all too common landscape prod, uh, uh, practices in the Twin Cities. In studio with us um, is Russ Henry and Chesney Edquist, who together own and operate Minnehaha Falls Landscaping, an all-organic landscaping company. Together, they also founded Be Safe Minneapolis, an organization dedicated to transitioning the entire city of Minneapolis to pesticide-free uh, lawns. Mm-hmm. Welcome. We're, we're, thank you very much, Laura. It's great to be here. And we're also really glad to be joined on the phone now by Luna Zeidner, a member of the Minneapolis Parks Pesticide Advisory Committee and a employee of Green Guilds Landscaping. Uh, Luna, great to have you on the phone. Hi there, Russ and Laura and Chesney. Uh, good to see. Uh, good to be uh, here on the phone with all of you. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, so, uh, Luna, you're a member of the Minneapolis Pesticide uh, uh, Parks Pesticide Advisory Committee uh, with me. It's great to be on that committee with you. And, and I'm wondering yeah. if you just uh, talk a little bit about what's the problem with using pesticides in parks. You know, what have you heard from folks, and what do you see? Yeah, so um, there's there's a couple things that come to mind. Um, obviously, this year we've seen um, 
how many lawsuits has it been? It's either two or three, maybe even four at this point, um, that have uh, shown uh, that Monsanto, uh, specifically with the use of glyphosate, um, had been covering up uh, evidence that it did, in fact, have uh, carcinogenic effects. Um, and so there have been several people, uh, most of whom were applicators of glyphosate or Roundup, um, who uh, developed cancer, um, Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, from being exposed to this chemical for so many years. Um, mm-hmm. And immediately that makes me think of, you know, the number of people in, in the park system who currently uh, use it mm-hmm. um, in, in four key areas. Uh, that would be gardens, uh, golf courses, uh, athletic fields, and uh, natural areas um, for the, you know, removal of buckthorn um, and other invasives. Uh, so that's, that's obviously a big problem is that we're exposing, you know, public employees uh, to, you know, potentially uh, carcinogenic uh, compounds on a daily basis. And uh, not only that, we're exposing our whole ecosystem to that. So um, we know that glyphosate can damage, um, you know, the soil uh, microbiology, um, which, you know, is so important in passing nutrients uh, through the, through the uh, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you, you know, have glyphosate in that system, you know, a lot of uh, fungus in particular can die, and that can really cause a shift in um, what, you know, what plants are able to grow. Um, so that's a huge problem. And then on top of that, uh, parks are a place where we're very young people um, and also very small animals. Um, you know, live and, and play and, and explore. And, uh, you know, we're exposing um, our visitors and our residents, uh, both human and animal, uh, to all of these things as well. So mm. really we are seeing um, harm to, you know, all sorts of different people, um, potential harm to, to so many species um, when we get this stuff in our water and our soil and on our plants. Um, you know, it really uh, it really can add up to, to be quite devastating, and I don't think we've quite gotten to that point yet. I think there's um, it's going to be a lot of work, but I think we can really work, uh, you know, uh, through this Pesticide Advisory Committee, we can help advise um, the park board how to do better, how to operate uh, without pesticides. So would you uh, want to share a little bit about the, about the Pesticide Advisory Committee that we're on together? Yeah, so um, it was created uh, basically in response to um, the park board issuing a moratorium on uh, glyphosate, the pesticide I was just talking about, um, commonly known as Roundup. Mm -hmm. Uh, They issued a moratorium on it uh, for this season, and that was last fall that that was issued. So it's been about a year now. Um, And so uh, they created this advisory committee basically to help um, park staff come up with ways in which to uh, do all of the weed management that they do, um, because we really are talking mostly about herbicides uh, used for the control of plants, especially invasive plants. Um, But how how to do weed control, um, you know, without using glyphosate or Mm. um, ideally without using any pesticides at all. So, uh, you know, what we did as a committee is um, do a lot of research. We did a lot of outreach to different... um, different organizations uh, in different parts of the country that have been working on, um, you know, getting rid of pesticides in in parks specifically, as well as other areas. Um, I know, obviously, we've been working with um, Chip Osborne uh, more recently, who um, is, you know, the nation's probably foremost expert on organic turf management. Um, We reached out to the IPM Institute, um, who has been running a program that... uh, is, has been working really hard to get rid of um, pesticides in, in parks uh, in the Chicago area. Um, and what we did is we put together a, a very detailed report um, for those four areas I was talking about, the natural areas, um, ball fields, uh, golf courses, and gardens. And we, we put together a report that kind of said, here are all of the management tools you know, that we can use as alternatives. Um, that are, you know, they might be a little bit more labor intensive. You might need more staff to, to achieve this effectively. But here are options. Here are some very, like, concrete things you can do. Like, uh, for example, um, using a vinegar solution to remove weeds around a fence mm. or around a sign, you know, on, on, a, on a mulch or a rock bed, for example. Or, um, 
you know, uh, solarization, which is smothering out weeds using plastic and, and kind of, you know, using the heat of the sun to kind of uh, more or less uh, steam the weeds. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We've also talked about using uh, actual steam machines that, that <laughs> emit steam and can kind of not necessarily burn the weeds, but, but heat them up so much that they, you know, just kind of wither up. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of options out there. Obviously, uh, humans have been managing weeds, uh, you know, since we've had civilizations and been doing agriculture. So uh, there are ways to manage weeds that don't, you know, require pesticides. We've been using pesticides for maybe 100 years at most. And uh, we've been using all of these other techniques, all these other cultural practices and mechanical practices. Um, we've been using those for, you know, millenniums. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know. There's a lot of options out there, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's just kind of a matter of figuring out what's going to work for you. So um, um, well, how can how can other people get more involved in this if they want the city to completely stop using any pesticides? Um, how can people get more involved? Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that I think is really important is um, getting, uh, you know, the public's voice um, in on, on some of these meetings, because we are still meeting and uh, as a committee, um, even though we've kind of made our initial, um, you know, our initial, uh, given our initial advice to the board about what, uh, what good management techniques would be to replace glyphosate, um, we're still uh, working on the uh, organic transition of um, two uh, spaces in the park system, uh, Fort Snelling and um, rest. What, what's the other uh, Neiman, field? We're doing another athletic uh, field. The, the athletic field is right there by Fort Snelling. It's Neiman Sports Complex. Neiman Sports Complex. Yep. And then, so we're doing two. We're going to. I was just going to say, and then with the schools, also uh, Franklin Middle School will be uh, piloting yeah. this year, too. Yeah. So both the park board and the school board, that's important, actually, mm-hmm. um, are working to start transitioning uh, some of their spaces to be fully organic, um, which I think is a great step. But I think we really need uh, to, to continue to be able to hear, you know, the public tell us why it's so important to them. Um, you know, whether you really care about bees or you're really worried about your kids' safety, it's, it's really important that we hear um, from you why this matters so much. Um, because, you know, to be honest, there's, there's a lot of um, folks from the community, uh, you know, on this board, and I think they bring a very valuable voice. And I think there's a lot of folks who come from... Um, not to use this too pejoratively, but like the industry, you know, they sure. come from, um, you know, different big organizations that really kind of have, you know, a lot of sway in some of these decisions uh, with the government. And, you know, not to say that they don't bring valuable information because they certainly have uh, been really um, valuable to learn from and to talk with and make mm-hmm. these decisions with. Um, so in terms of professionals, Luna, I'm wondering about the land care practitioners at the park board. What are you finding in terms of or what's your impression about the staff's willingness to engage in practices uh, practices to re- eliminate pesticides? Um, I think that they are, you know, it's hard because, because this year uh, we did see, you know, with our first season of not using glyphosate, we did see the use of other chemicals. And so if that's the initial response we're getting, I don't think that's necessarily the best, um, mm-hmm. the best option. And, you know, um, so yeah, and I want to, we got three minutes left in the segment. I want to talk about the well, civil, um, the action you have coming up. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Um, yeah. And uh, Luna is, uh, is, is helping to organize uh, an event coming up. Uh, First of all, um, September 28th and 29th, Chesney and I, uh, Be Safe Minneapolis and, and the, the team there, have put together a, um, a vigil uh, to honor the wildlife killed in Minneapolis parks. Um, and so we're doing this in partnership with the Friends of Minneapolis Wildlife and the Friends of Loring Park. Friends of Lake Hiawatha. Oh, excuse me. Friends of Lake Hiawatha. And... Um, and together we're going to get together and we're going to think about, talk about, uh, uh, share with neighbors, uh, sing and pray and, and, and be really uh, cognizant of the animals, the bees, the wild creatures that are being killed either intentionally or unintentionally in Minneapolis parks. Um, things like drowning beavers in order to, uh, in, in traps in order to 
keep the golf courses going um, with you know without uh, without flooding in certain areas. Uh, things like uh, using um, herbicides at the top of Minnehaha Falls, uh, herbicides that clearly got into the water, and and uh, and these kind of things, and the bees that are that are killed on the golf courses when we use so many herbicides there. So we're we're going to get together. We're gonna we're gonna be together, and we're gonna um, we're gonna be talking and and thinking about um, about the wild animals and their place in the parks. So that's September 28th and 29th. And as a part of, uh, of that, that's going to be in Minnehaha Falls Park. Everybody's invited. Um, as a part of that, there will be a civil disobedience action. Uh, disobedience. Um, <laughs> we're going to be staying in the park overnight. Uh, and so um, it, should be, uh, it should be really wonderful to be together uh, in a way that uh, brings some attention to this issue. And then Luna... You've got uh, you've been planning for an event as well. Would you like to talk about that at all? Yeah. So um, I, along uh, or as part or in collaboration with uh, several organizations, including um, the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, Science for the People, the Black and in, uh, Indigenous and People of Colors uh, Environmental Justice Table, and, and many others, um, are currently working together uh, to have a um, hold a Green New Deal Summit, and that's mm-hmm. going to be November first and second. Um, so coming up in, in a couple months. Um, and uh, what we really hope to do with that is discuss um, the future of, you know, envir- the environmental movement, um, you know, not, not only in this country, you know, which is kind of the Green New Deal's, you know, this big national program, you know, to if, uh, overhaul and change our system. If folks um, want to get information on where they can um, find out more about the, the events you're planning there, Luna? Where should they go? We're we're kind of in a bind right now. Oh, well, you know what? We're also in a bind because we need (laughs) to take a break. So we'll come back and we'll get some more contact information. Um, And so you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Eat fresh and support local farmers by shopping at the Minneapolis Farmer's Market. It's peak time at the Farmer's Market. Lots of sweet corn, eggplants, fresh and local fruits and vegetables, meat and farmstead goods. Keep the summer bounty all year long because it's a great time to pickle and can. Look for the cucumbers, incredible deal, canning tomatoes. The Minneapolis Farmer's Market is open every day, 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. Plus, there's additional locations Tuesdays at the Hennepin County Government Center and Thursdays at Nicollet Mall. More details at MPLS Farmer's Market. I'm Connie Bjork, co-host of Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show. Join Michelle Kitzmiller and I as we focus on all aspects of health, wellness, spirituality, and growth from a mind, body, spirit, emotion perspective. Join us next Saturday as we discuss medications, which are safe, which should you avoid, and the role drug companies play. You can be proactive and create a healthier lifestyle. Join us for the Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show, Saturdays at 10 a.m. Let us share with you ways to infuse vitality into life. Do yourself a favor and check out the amazing cuisine of EatLocalMinnesota.com. More than just a website, EatLocalMinnesota.com provides you with the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities. The award-winning Hazel's Northeast combines the feel of a small-town diner with the vibrant nature of its Northeast Minneapolis neighborhood. Whether it's breakfast, lunch, weekend brunch, or dinner, their classically inspired and creatively prepared American comfort food is always made from scratch. Hazel's Northeast at 29th and Johnson in Northeast Minneapolis. EatLocalMinnesota.com The dedicated staff at Nightingale Restaurant take pride in presenting a thoughtful and delicious approach to food and drink, whether you're visiting for dinner, happy hour, or brunch. Their focus on made-from-scratch meals using sustainable and local ingredients is likely to make Nightingale your go-to spot for inspired food and drinks. Nightingale, Lindell and 26th in Minneapolis. The Fall St. Paul Art Crawl, presented by the St. Paul Art Collective, will be running the weekend of October 11th, 12th, and 13th. This is a must-do experience that you will love. The St. Paul Art Crawl showcases the diversity of art that St. Paul has to offer. By nurturing a vibrant arts community, the Art Crawl inspires artistic growth and fosters a creative exchange of ideas. Throughout the weekend, you'll have the chance to explore fabulous art while touring through local artist studios, lofts, and galleries, hosting over 350 artists 
Up for purchase will be paintings, photography, pottery, sculpture, fiber arts, and more. And when you buy local art, you're providing to artists so that they may continue to create the art we love. The Metro Transit is supporting the local art community with a free transit pass for Saturday and Sunday. Download your pass to ride buses and light rail for free during the art crawl. Be sure to get all the details at stpaulartcrawl.org. That's stpaulartcrawl.org. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking about eco-responsible um, landscaping, and we're with um, the two uh, co-founders of Be Safe Minneapolis, and um, joining us by phone now. And, and, and uh, we're also joined here by phone uh, by Alana Bliss, who is the co-founder of Green Guilds Landscaping. Alana, it's great to have you on the phone. Yeah. Thank you. It's great to be here. Welcome. So, is some of this... Um, Thinking on the, the the pesticide thinking um, about land is really a um, it's a different approach than what we need right now. Would you agree with that? We need to kind of return to more of a holistic relationship with the land. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of unseen effects that happen when we're just putting on herbicides and pesticides and things like that onto the landscape. Um, what we really don't look at a lot of times is the complex food networks and basically like multiverses that exist within soil mm. and that's just one tiny example well, that's not tiny but it's one example of um of the things that we don't notice because when we put on biocides or herbicides pesticides onto plants we have a lot of um greater effects than we see so it affects the soil it affects other plants and water and um as russ mentioned earlier in the show there's a lot of effects that, that we like don't look at and need to see. We went to the Nobel Conference on Soil um, uh, mm-hmm. last year, and uh, it's one of the quotes from there. It's, it's not just what, you know, we hear this expression, and you are what you eat, but you are really what your food eats. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. That's Alana, true. You, you do a lot of work, Alana, with um, restoration of ecosystems, and, and one of the things that, you know, we hear a lot about is invasive species, plants and animals. Can you talk a little bit about maybe why there's so many invasive species, why that's such a big issue right now? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's a it's a, res- a result of colonialism, <laughs> mm, mm. Um, because invasive species tend to move much faster at the speed of humans. So when we come into a new habitat, new ecosystem, um, and we bring with us elements of the old, then they can spread. Uh, one example that most people aren't necessarily aware of is that earthworms are not native mm. to Minnesota. There's not a single native earthworm to this region. And yet, you know, ever since I can remember, there's been worms in the soil. And one of the impacts that this has had is that it's taken our native forest, which used to have thick layers of, of leaves, and it's made the, the worms eat them down. And now you look into the forest and it's more barren. And the wildflowers that thrive in that environment are gone. So a lot of native species that evolved in this habitat without earthworms are struggling. And that's just one example. And that's one that we don't think of. But then you, you see other things like buckthorn and you know, well, um, the, the uh, garlic, um, garlic and, mustard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, garlic mustard. Thank you for that. And uh, and people see that more often and think that that's kind of more the case of what we have to think about. But it's really our entire ecosystem has shifted since we've changed the since we've come onto the scene here. Um, it, the colonial. So it's kind of a it's kind of a bigger shift you're saying than than just than just uh, the plants that we the buckthorn or garlic mustard we might see. But, but yeah, then, and I mean, of mm-hmm, course. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. No, no, please. I was going to say, of course, there's the intentional bringing, there's also intentionally bringing other plants in from other, from places that are yeah. um, okay. similar climates, but other countries. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways that, that invasives come in. Um, so, you know, I really encourage our clients to, to go with more native plants. And then there's also, un, you know, the intentional where, you know, for example, in Hawaii, they accidentally got invasive, um, had rats come in, mm-hmm. which were invasive to them. And then they ended up, introducing mongoose to try to kill off the rats but they don't they're not awake at the same time right they're <laughs> nocturnal the, the rats are nocturnal so now they have a mongoose infestation so this like attempt to try to mitigate the issue by bringing another thing in was also a problem mm. so and then there's unintentional like the stuff that comes in on boats and motors and stuff like that yeah. Well, so when we're looking at these large spaces, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot from um, land managers in park systems and such is, well, herbicides are the, the cheapest way to deal with invasive species. So what do you think about that? Are, are herbicides the cheapest, most effective way? 
they might be fast in the short term, but I mean, I like to, I don't think that you really can say that they're the most effective way and ultimately not even the cheapest because for example, when you have, um, when you go to take a drug, you know, you could take an herb that's going to build your immune system up. It's going to give you like a whole nutritious, um, way of dealing with the sickness and make your body actually strong enough to handle the sickness. Or you can take a drug that's going to kill the thing and then you have to replenish your entire, like, for example, an antibiotic, you have to then replenish your whole gut flora and try to like come back to a sense of health. But then we don't even learn that you should be taking the probiotics and all the specific strains to build back up your, that complex ecosystem that lives inside of your, your gut so that you can be healthy again. So it's like, it might be effective in the moment, but then you have these long-term effects afterwards that we're not even addressing hardly as a society. And it's the same thing with, with pesticides and herbicides. You, it might work for the moment for that plant, but it's going to have a long-term effect effect in the whole system. Chesney, mm. earlier you mentioned the kill-cause effect. It sounds like maybe Alana is touching on something mm-hmm. related to the kill-cause effect where the pesticides or the herbicides are actually causing, they're killing the first generation of weeds that we see, but they're causing the second. Yeah, I think especially what Alana was mentioning about the colonialism is recognizing that when we're working to introduce native plants into the environment, we have to be focusing also on creating the soil conditions for native plants. So, so much negative about the colonial approach to living. Can a, a, a more living approach create positive, be as positive for our landscape as the colonial approach was negative? Yeah, we, I like to think of it in the, in the context of like, we have regenerative and we have degenerative and then we also generative. Like right now, because we've created so much of degenerative um, systems with our with the way that humans live on the planet we have to start creating more generative systems we have to start thinking about regeneration and then ultimately once we've come to the point of being beyond regeneration we just want to live generatively and that's kind of a cultural movement that we look at within permaculture because in permaculture we're striving to create systems of generation of generative living and that's that's not just within how we interact with our environment but it's also how we interact with each other and it's how we interact with future generations so i love it i love it we're down at last two minutes i want to make sure we have more enough time left to talk about the events coming up so i, I really thank you for joining us elena bliss you're the president of green guilds landscaping yes and thanks a lot pleasure. good talking with you alana and so tell us more um, about the event and how people can join it yeah, September 28th and 29th, uh, Be Safe Minneapolis, Friends of Lake Hiawatha, and Friends of Minneapolis Wildlife have organized a vigil to honor the wildlife killed in Minneapolis parks. The vigil is going to be held at Minnehaha Park. Um, and we're in Minnehaha Park. Minnehaha Park, we're going to meet right over by the top of the falls. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to start at noon on the 28th, and we're going to go till noon on the 29th. And we'll be breaking the park rules in an act of civil disobedience by staying overnight in the in the parks um, in the park there together as we uh, think about, sing, pray, and talk with each other about uh, the animals that have that have been killed um, in. In, in the pursuit of, uh, frankly, management strategies in the parks that are that are outdated and need to be updated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we need to we need a shift in our thinking. Um, I, Otto Schreimer um, talks about moving from ego centric, which mm-hmm. is my lawn, my lawn. Ooh, look at my great lawn here. Ooh, I'm better there. To more of an eco centric, like we're yes, part of something, right, right. and we're all parts. So again, how do people connect with you? Yeah, well, it'd be great. Uh, check us out on BeSafeMinneapolis.com or also on Facebook. Be Safe. And this is on Facebook, so we can all share it. Yep, so Facebook can, event there. Be Safe, speaking of. Mm-hmm. Be Safe. We can we can all be safe. We can all be safe, yeah. Be safe. Oh, hey, check out the Be Safe Minneapolis YouTube page with for lots of great videos of bees and butterflies. Be safe. Be safe. Be kind. Be good. <laughs>